Today we're going to be in the book of Mark again, continuing in our series throughout the book of Mark, where we are seeing Jesus, the Son of God. I ask that you would turn to your Bibles with us this morning as we go to Mark 2, and we are going to be in verse 13, and I had planned to go to verse 22 this morning, but didn't just didn't work out, and so we're going to only be in all the way through verse 17 today. So Mark two thirteen through 17, and then we'll get to 18 next week. Let me read our scripture for us, and then we'll pray. Mark two thirteen. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. How sweet are those words. So refreshing to this time we have here today. And I think of what Adam was saying, Lord, how many of us are tired, weary, and even in some ways thinking, I've failed. I haven't lived up to your righteous standards and it's quite true that we have all fallen short of your glory. But you give us these wonderful words that the Son of Man, Son of God, Messiah, Savior of all the earth did not come for righteous people but he came for sinners. And we have the most wonderful news presented to us in the gospel that Christ Jesus dies for sinners. That the most righteous man in all the earth gave up his life to redeem us who are so broken, who are so wretched and so evil and even put you to the cross and you came to save us. God, I ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law this morning and we might be encouraged, we might be healed, renewed by your word, but most of all, we'd be brought into conformity with Christ Jesus. Lord, we love and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Before I was a Christian, I loved my sin. And that's pretty obvious for most of us. And it's true for all of us. Before any of us were Christians, as Ephesians 2 talks about, it says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. As it talks about in Titus 3, it says that we were haters of one another and even hating God ourselves. And so we see from the Bible that we loved our sin, but I really loved my sin. Whether it was in high school when I was very prideful and wanted to be made much of and be seen by my peers and accepted by many people, and maybe it was through the avenue of sports, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but wanted to be made much of through it. My parents can even remember some of this as I experimented with over probably 10 different high school sports just so I could be seen and acknowledged. 
or when it came to being popular in school and being acknowledged by people. I wanted to be liked. And so what did I, what did I do? I conformed to people and what they wanted me to do. And I began to love sin. I began to love drinking. I began to even love drugs. I began to even um, love sexual immorality and many other things that came with that lifestyle. And that lifestyle continued on into college where I continued to live it up. And many of you know I was in a fraternity and most fraternities, while they say, oh yeah, we're all about brotherhood and all these things, yeah, they're just about the party life, (laughs) most of it. And I remember living that lifestyle, but while I was in that lifestyle and when I was in that fraternity, there was a guy who wasn't about that lifestyle, and was a little bit different than I was. He didn't live for sexual immorality in the world. He didn't live to get drunk and do drugs. And he didn't even live for popularity. And it was very clear um, by his lifestyle. And this guy, his name was Kyle, and he was a Christian. He was a Christian who was in my fraternity. And many people, when they saw him, they saw him as strange and unusual because he would do different things. He didn't always hang out with us when we would do certain things. He wouldn't always joke and say the crude things that we would say about people. And oftentimes, he just wasn't like us. Just wasn't like us. But at the same time, while Kyle was different than us, he was with us. He would take care of us. He would joke around as much as he could with us whenever we were not being so crude. He would hang out with us and play sports with us as much as he could and all those things. And I remember hanging around Kyle a lot. And Kyle really hung around me a lot and invested in me a lot. And I remember one night as I was living for my sin, loving my sin, living it up, and as you could imagine what that would look like in a college fraternity, I said, Kyle, why are you always hanging out with us? Why are you always with us? Why do you keep like coming around this, like you're, you don't do the things you do, we do, like you don't drink, you don't do the drugs, you don't go after the women, like what is it in for you? Like I don't get it. And besides, half the time we make fun of you anyways because you're the Christian nerd who has to get up early in the morning and go to church. Like why are you hanging around with us? It's a good question to ask, right? Because it seems so strange and so unusual that someone who is so out of place and really had no personal interest of being there, was there. Why is it? Well, the answer to that question, I'll give to you later, but it's right in this text before us. It's right here in Mark 2, 13 through 17. Why is it that Kyle would come to be around me, share the gospel with me, hang out with me so much, even to the point where eventually I became a Christian and came to know Jesus? Why is it that he would do something like that? I would suggest to you that it's right here in our text before us, Mark 2, 13 through 17. And so with that question, well, why would you do this? Let's begin to look at our text. Mark 2, 13 begins this. Starts off with Jesus, and we'll set the scene for us. He went out again beside the sea. Now, just to set the scene in the context of what's going on, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. And Sea of Galilee, this was a very popular place. A lot of people would be living around the area, but mainly why people would be living around the area is it was a major trade port. 
There'd be a lot of economic business going on here. There'd be a lot of um, money being exchanged back and forth, and there'd be a lot of trade going on. And people would come from all around the area. They'd come from Samaria. They'd come from Judea and all of these areas to go to Galilee. And they're right by the Sea of Galilee. And so Galilee is kind of the hub of all this economic influence and all of this kind of big city building in some way. You can kind of think of it like a coastal city in our nation today. You could think of something like Seattle or San Francisco on the West Coast, or you could think of New York or New York City, or you could think of Boston on the East Coast. And it's a big city, a big hub, lots of people around, and this is where Jesus is at. And what's interesting about this place is what's been consistent throughout the book of Mark is wherever Jesus is at, whether he's in the synagogue, which is basically the church and all the religious people, he's drawing people to himself. The people flood to him. Or whether he's in just his house, the people begin to flood to him. And this is exactly what begins to happen right here. And what I love to think about it is Jesus is in the biggest of cities, he's in the biggest of environments, and he is the biggest deal. What's amazing about this is, no matter the setting, no matter the context, Jesus is one who's to be sought after, to be seen. Look at what the text says. Ending in verse 13. And the, all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And I'm going to stop right there just to think about that. Whatever context Jesus is in, he's calling people to follow him. Notice that. Whatever context, whether he's in synagogue, at church, whether he's at his home, or whether he's in the busiest workplace, he's calling people to follow him. And I think this is instructive for all of us, whether we are in the synagogue, we're not in the synagogue, we're in a church, whether we're in the church, whether we're in the busiest places of our work in our daily environment, or whether we're just at home trying to relax. What Jesus is calling for right here is to follow him. Jesus is consistently asking, not for us to compartmentalize our life and say, oh, I'll give you this part of my life, Jesus. No, instead of all of it is coming after Jesus. Now, what's interesting is Jesus has accumulated this big following. He has this big gathering, and we have all these people coming to see what he's like, and he's really popular. We would kind of suspect someone being so popular, they would try to keep their popularity. They would try to keep people following him. But what we're going to see right here in verse 14 in a moment is that's not Jesus. Because oftentimes, if someone wants to keep their popularity, they don't want to say something controversial. They don't want to say something that's going to turn people off, turn people back, or do something that might be a stumbling block to others and take away from their popularity. And we can think about politicians or actors or athletes in today's day and age. I think about someone like LeBron James. LeBron James is a great basketball player. But LeBron James, he loves to be acknowledged. He loves to be praised. He wants a big following. And it wasn't that long ago where LeBron James went, I think it was on Twitter, and made a statement about China and how corrupt it was. But then he found out China sells most of his shoes and most of his gear. And he found out that he was going to lose what? His name, money, being approved of, all those things. And what did he do? He backed off the controversial things he said. He said, I apologize. I'm sorry, China. I shouldn't have said those things. And what did he do? He accommodated to the culture, right? Because why? He wants to keep his following. He wants to keep his following. Or we can just think about any politician 
whether it's right or left, liberal or conservative, whatever it is, politicians are out for themselves. They're out to protect their votes, to not offend people. And the worst thing that they could ever say is something that's actually going to be offensive. And what we see right here about Jesus is he's breaking that norm. Jesus is unlike any other. Jesus is going to do something very controversial right here that breaks all these ideas of popularity. Because Jesus, and we saw this last week, he's not about popularity. That's not why Jesus is coming into the world, just to be seen, to be known, to be made, just to, just to be acknowledged. Yes, he's coming to be praised, but it's for much more than that. Look what happens in verse 14. Jesus does the unthinkable thing, and to us it's not that unthinkable, but I'll explain why it's unthinkable. Verse 14, and he passed by and he saw Levi. Now, Levi is also the disciple who's named Matthew, as he's known in the other Gospels, but just a different um, name as he's known by. Levi or Matthew. He sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. Okay, so let's just stop right there. Levi's sitting at a tax booth. Kind of set the context for what a tax collector would be. Because we're going to hear this scene, and Jesus, he's just going to call Levi. He's going to say, hey, Levi, come follow me. And we're going to think, well, what's the big deal? Tax collector, what's so bad about that? I mean, yeah, we don't like paying taxes, of course, but, I mean, what's so bad about this? Well, Levi, or Matthew right here, he would be seen as the worst of the worst in his day and age. He would be seen as the least of the least. He'd be seen as the wicked of the wicked. Of all people that you don't want to be around, it's Levi right here because he's a tax collector. And here's kind of how their system worked. Is tax collectors, they were appointed by the Roman government. And how they would be appointed is they would go to the Roman government and they would say, I'm going to be a tax collector for this city or this county or this area and I'm going to appoint a quota for how much taxes I'm going to receive from the people. And the Romans would hear this quota and they would say, ah, that seems good. And so the tax collector would be appointed by the Roman government and then he'd have to collect the quota from people. But what the tax collector also did is whenever he would make above that quota, whenever he would get more money than he had actually said that he needed, what do you think he did with it? He kept it all for himself. And so what tax collectors were accustomed to doing, what they would often do, is they would keep going around and around and around the cities and collecting taxes and taxes and taxes and sometimes even lying and stealing and cheating people out of the money until they eventually got really, really rich. So you can imagine how people saw these people. I don't know exactly what their moral equivalence is in our day and age, but I think sometimes people think of lawyers this way, and I'm not saying lawyers are this way for sure, but it's sometimes how they think about them. People just think lawyers are just after your money, and they're going to sue and sue and sue until they get more and more and more. And I think that's kind of how we would have thought about this guy right here. Or it's something like a fiscal scheme or someone who's on Wall Street and is scamming people and stealing money. That's what this kind of guy is like. And to go even further, this guy right here, because he's living in a Judean area, he's kind of living um, in this area where there'd be lots of religion, he's probably a Jew. And what it also means is he had abandoned his Jewish religion. He had abandoned the religion of his fathers. He had abandoned the synagogue and he had walked away from it all. Instead, he had wanted what? Money. He said, I don't want this Old Testament religion. I don't want to be a Jew anymore. And he said, I want money. And so he's stealing, he's cheating, rejecting God by his society and by how the synagogues and the Jews would have seen him. He's the lowest of the low. 
morally unclean. You can't go around him. You can't touch him. If you do or you're seen acquainted with him, you're basically the same thing. If people saw someone actually dealing with this guy, reject him from society. But remember, Jesus isn't after popularity. He's not. Jesus is not after popularity. Jesus is after something very different that we're going to see here in this text. But look what Jesus does, even in the face of all this opposition, in the face of all these people who would say, how is it that he's going to talk to this guy? And we'll see that come up in the text. Jesus says, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, you're probably wondering, well, why is it that Jesus would ask this guy to follow him? Why is it that would happen? We're going to get to that a moment into the text. But I want to pause for a second, and I want you to contemplate Levi and Matthew. Levi or Matthew, the same name. What would they be, what would Levi, not they, what would he be thinking right now at this point? Let's put ourselves in his shoes for a quick moment to think about this setting, this context. Levi, he had rejected the Jewish religion. And he might even had some good reason. He might have seen the religious Pharisees. He might have seen the scribes. He might have seen their legalism. And he might have even seen the corruption that was going on in the synagogue and said, I don't want anything to do with that. Get out of here, religion. Stay away from me. And so what he did is he went over and he got rich. And he got rich off of tax collecting and made a name for himself. And he was sitting pretty, pretty well just with all of his money that he had made. And not even just that. He had protection from the mightiest force the world had ever seen the Roman government. Levi had it made. Levi had it the best. Essentially what Levi had is something like the American dream where we have all of our money, we have everything set for us, we have protection, we have freedom to do whatever he wanted because he can do whatever he wanted. He's not bound to religious law. Essentially he had exactly what most of us in here want is we want our money we want our freedom. We, don't, we want protection. We want someone to be helping us. And so think about this. Maybe you, me, we basically have this. And most of us do. Some of us, I know, don't, but most of us do. We have money, we have protection, and we have all this liberty to go and do whatever I want. And especially even our society today, that's what they proclaim is complete autonomy, complete freedom. Do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good. And Levi has all that. And I just think about even Levi right at this moment, he's at his tax booth and he's seeing all of his money, he's seeing everything that he loves and he's just looking at it. And then this strange guy, Jesus, appears. Follow me. Why would he follow him? He's got it made. He's got the best of the best lifestyles. He's set. Why would he follow him? And I think it's the same question I want to ask every one of us. Why would we follow Jesus? Sometimes I think when we get asked that question, why would we follow Jesus right here in this instance? We say because we want Jesus to add on to our lifestyle. We want Jesus in addition to the things that we already have because he'll make our life even better and plus, praise the Lord for this, Jesus will keep us out of hell, right? So not only will I be rich, not only will I be set in life and protected, not only will I be free, but I don't have to go to hell. I think that's oftentimes what happens with it. And that's so far from what happens right here in the text, brothers and sisters. And everyone in here who is prizing those things, you need to see this. 
The reason why Levi follows Jesus is not to get an add-on, not to get something on top of it. The reason why he follows Jesus is because Jesus is better. Jesus is walking by, and he's heard the stories of what Jesus has been doing. He's heard about his work in the synagogue and how he's cleansed lepers. He's heard about raising people from the dead. He's heard about casting demons. He's heard about healing people who are paralyzed. He's heard about all these works, and he's realizing right here in the face of all his riches, in the face of all his protection, in the face of everything he has, Jesus walking by, it's not an addition, Jesus is better. And what does Levi do? It's not like he goes up to Jesus and he says, oh, hey, Jesus, like other people actually do in the book of Mark, hey, can I follow you and keep all these things on me? Can I follow you and keep tax collecting? Can I follow you and keep doing all this stuff? No. He immediately follows Jesus. What he recognizes is one of my favorite verses in Luke 9, 25, when Jesus asks his disciples, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world And think about it, Levi basically did gain the whole world. He had it all. But Levi recognizes this. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The answer is obviously nothing. Brothers and sisters, what we need to get in this room, what I need to get so clearly, Jesus is not an add-on. No, Jesus, what he's calling to us is better. He offers a better joy than money can offer. He better, offers better protection. He offers protection from the eternal fire of hell than this world can offer. He offers great liberty because the truth will set us free. Jesus offers something so much better and it's not something to add on. Don't do that. Don't do that. No, it's a trade-off. It's not an add-on, it's a trade-off. It's I'm gonna trade everything that I'm treasuring and give it up for Jesus. One of my favorite parables that Jesus uses is in Matthew 13. I've used it before and you probably know it. Matthew 13, 44. There's a man who goes and finds a treasure that's hidden in the field. And then he sees the treasure and he buries it again, puts it back, covers it up, and goes back into town and sells every single thing that he has. And it also says that he sold it in his great joy. So here's what he does. He sells everything in his great joy to go and buy what? the treasure hidden in the field. Brothers and sisters, it's an exchange. It's not to just add on something. It's to abandon my old ways, to abandon my sin and say, I'm gonna come get this instead. Is that how we're approaching Christianity? Where in every setting, every context, we are grabbing a hold of Jesus. Now we come to our question again. Why is it that Jesus would talk to a tax collector. And we're gonna kind of find that answer right here in verse 15. So let's go back to this. So Levi abandons all of his sin, says, I'm done with you. Let's go follow Jesus. And this is what he begins to do, verse 15. And I love this idea of what Levi does. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And so what I think happens here and what most commentators think happens here is they go over to the tax collector Levi's house. And so they go to his house and who's there? A bunch more tax collectors. So the worst of the worst, the vilest of the vile, the evil of the evil, they're there. And there's also sinners. Now just a quick clarification right here. Sinners doesn't mean the idea that there's people out there in the world who are not sinners. 
It's not to infer the idea that there's sinners in this place and then there's out there people who aren't sinners. The way that it's using the term sinners is it's using people who would be rejected or people who would be seen as morally unclean by the Jewish elite, by the synagogue leaders. And so all it's saying is these people are the morally unclean. They're the worst of the worst. And these are the people who Jesus is hanging out with. These are the people who love their money. These are the people who love the things of the world. And Jesus is hanging out with them. Two things I love about this. First, look at what Levi does. How do you think those tax collectors and sinners got there to his house? I, I imagine, I don't know this, I'm kind of inferring this, but I imagine what happened is Levi saw the greatness and superiority of Jesus. He saw that he's better and he said, oh, I gotta go tell all my friends. I gotta go tell all the tax collectors. I gotta go tell all the rest of the people who are morally unclean. And I gotta help them come meet Jesus. And that's, I think, exactly what happens right here. Brothers and sisters, when we've been called to follow Jesus, when we are following Jesus, we're gonna bring other people along with us to follow Jesus. And we're gonna go and tell them the message. Kind of actually like what my friend Kyle was doing when I was in college. He was coming and telling me the message because he had been made clean. But one thing I love about this right here is Jesus, he's hanging out and he's eating a big feast. The idea that he's reclining at the table, this is a big meal. It's basically almost the next thing to a party. So they're reclining, hanging out, big feast. Now this, as you're gonna see right in verse 16, and we'll just go to it so you can see it. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, the scribes and Pharisees, they begin to see Jesus and what he's doing. Now he's eating and he's living, like, kind of like living it up essentially, not really like that, but he's hanging out with them. And they begin to see, how's he doing that? These people, they're the unclean, vilest of the vile. And what did they assume? They assumed that someone was evil by who they were around. They had this assumption that you could be around kind of the morally unclean and that would make you unclean yourself. They had this idea that if you were around all these people who did all these terrible things, you were essentially the same. And what I love about Jesus is he knows that's not the truth. And we need to know that truth as well is sin doesn't come from being around people. Sin doesn't come around from being around a bunch of sinners. Yeah, it's important for you not to walk in the company of the wicked, as Psalm 1 says, but where responsibility for sin always lies is in you. Yeah, I agree that bad company is going to corrupt good morals, but Jesus knows that just because he's around bad company doesn't make him necessarily unclean. Let's look at Jesus right here. Jesus is recognizing what he teaches later on, I think it's in Mark 7, where he says that what defiles a person is not what comes into a person, but what defiles a person is what comes out of their heart. See, Jesus knows the problem with all of the people in the world is not being around one another. The problem is, is what's within them. And that's where sin lies. And Jesus knows that just being around these people is not gonna corrupt them. But these people, they ask the question, how is it 
that he can be around them. And think about this guy. He's proclaiming to be the Messiah. He's the religious of the religious. He's proclaiming himself to be God incarnate. How is it that such a holy person as Jesus is, how is it that he can dwell among so unclean people? How is it? Well, I told you a story about my friend Kyle. Kyle was so gracious to me so many times, even though I insulted him, made fun of him, and hung out with me in the worst of places. And one night, I asked Kyle that question that I already asked. Why is it that you keep hanging around me? I don't get it. I don't understand it at all. In verbatim, Kyle quoted verse 17. And here's the answer. Why would Jesus be around sinners and tax collectors? Why should some of us be around those who are sick with sin? Here's the answer, verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is trying to help these Pharisees. He's trying to help these scribes. He's trying to help the religious elite understand why he's coming. Is he's not coming for the people who got it all together. And we're gonna see right here in a quick second, nobody's got it all together. And the assumption that there's no one with sin is false. But he's saying, I'm coming for the people who are broken. I'm coming for the people who are messed up. I'm coming for the people who have completely disowned me and have rebelled against me. And I'm coming for the people who love their sin. Why is it that Kyle kept hanging around with me? Because I needed a physician. Because I was sick. Because I was a sinner. And I still am a sinner and still need a physician. And this is important we all recognize. It's not taught in our culture. It's oftentimes not taught in a lot of churches. But you are sick. You are sick with sin. And Jesus Christ came to heal the sick. Jesus Christ came as the great physician to do more than just surgery on you. Jesus Christ came as the great physician to take sin upon himself, to go to the cross as a perfect, righteous, blameless man and suffer the penalty of it, to deliver you from it. We love to sing the song, Amazing Grace. But think about how that song just starts. We love that song, and even secular people will sing it. But if you don't get the first line right, you won't understand the rest of it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch. I'm a wretch. You're a wretch. We're a wretch in our sin. And unless we get that right, we can't sing the rest of it. But if we understand that Jesus Christ came and saved a wretch like me, we can sing it. I once was lost and now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Many of us in here need to recognize this, that we're the sinners. Not looking outside at others, but looking in here and recognizing we are in need of the great physician, the physician who heals us by the power of the gospel. Now, 
there's a dangerous assumption to think that the Pharisees or the scribes are somehow sinless. As if Jesus is saying, yeah, I came for these guys, but because you guys are already righteous and because you guys by your works are going to heaven, I didn't come for you. And that's false. What Jesus right here I think is actually inferring and what he's actually implying right here is you scribes, Pharisees, you're sick. But you're not sick like these guys are. Like you can tell these guys are wretches. You're sick with the sin of hypocrisy. You're sick with the sin of looking down at others and condescending towards them and saying, look at you, sinner, just like the text says. Look at you, unclean. And what Jesus is trying to help them recognize right here is very much the text that we talked about last week is because of their blindness, because they don't think they need a physician, they're actually sicker than they think they are. So this message, it reaches two people. It reaches the person who thinks that I am without need of God's grace, the scribe and the Pharisee, and it reaches the person who says, I'm out of the reach of God's grace, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And what Jesus wants to say to both those people, and I guarantee you're in one of those categories. At some point, you've been in one of those categories. Either I'm right religious enough, I've been in the church enough, I've come to Sunday school enough, I've gone to church enough, I was born here, I'll die here, all that kind of good stuff, that religion. And Jesus says, what's it worth? I came to heal sick, not righteous. So the person who says, I'm out of the need of God's grace, oh, you need it. You need it, because we're a wretch. And to the person who's saying, I've done too much, I've gone too far. I'm the tax collector. I'm the vile of the vile. I'm the wicked of the wicked. Jesus says, no, you're not. Well, he says, yeah, you are, actually. He says, yeah, you are. But he says, I'm offering you grace. And I'll save you from your sins. To the wretch and to the self-righteous, Jesus offers salvation. Let's pray. God, how much of a wretch I am. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your healing power to cleanse me from my sin. I know that I abuse your grace. I know that I don't believe the truth of the gospel enough. I ask that you would help me to believe it more. God, I ask that you would help our congregation to believe the message of the gospel. The message that Christ, who is a blameless man, who is a blameless man, has paid for our sins and he has come for the wicked, for the evil, for the vilest of offenders. And that why we might be able to read a text like verse 17 and sing praises, be filled with joy, because we understand that we are sinners and you are the great physician who heals us by your gospel. God, we love and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.